Good morning. Just to continue with what Chris Elliott was saying, our church has been studying the book of Mark over the last several weeks uh, in a series called King and Cross. And the front end of Mark has been really focused on the kingship, of course, of Jesus. He is king, he is Lord, and his authority has no rival. Mark reads like a fast-paced action drama, and the king is on mission. He has things to do, and his authority is on display. In chapter 1, we saw, Chris mentioned this, but he tells the unclean spirit to come out. Be quiet, come out of him. And the spirit obeys him. Illness in Peter's mother-in-law, well, Jesus takes him by the hand, and the fever leaves immediately. The leper comes asking for healing. Mark says, immediately the leprosy left him when Jesus touched him. More healings in chapter 2. When a paralyzed man is lowered through the roof in front of Jesus. Heal paralysis? Done. But Jesus sees there's a greater need. The paralyzed man has sinned in his life. Can the king do anything about that? Yes, absolutely. Son, your sins are forgiven, he told him. Can he bring sin, excuse me, can he bring salvation to Matthew, the tax collector? Absolutely. And now here at the end of Mark chapter 2, the king sees a dominion he will reclaim. The title of the message today is The King Restores the Rest. But before we read, let's just, let's just hit that word for a second. When we say the word rest, rest, what do you think of? What comes flooding into your mind? A good book, a beach, all these things are coming to your mind. You know what's not coming into your mind? Deadlines. The needle's on empty, we gotta go to the gas station. That's not coming to your mind. Downsizing. Four little league games, three birthday parties, and two dentist appointments in two days. That's not coming to your mind. <laughs> None of that's coming to your mind. In a serious note, a more serious note, how about the doctor calls, the doctor's office calls and says, hey, the doctor will call you in three days to tell you about the results of the scan. That's not a restful three days. I don't know what came to your mind, was it uh, perhaps a warm fire, family time, a good book, Cancun? I don't know what came to your mind. But isn't it an awesome thing just to reflect for a moment and realize that God created rest? He created rest. We don't live in a universe where rest doesn't exist, and that is awesome. This contradiction of work and stress to that of ease and refreshment, God gave that to us so benevolently out of love for us, and it's awesome. So when we dive into the story of Mark chapter 2, verse 23, the very opening two words, one Sabbath, we need to stop right there and remind ourselves, number one, what God created. What God created. God didn't just create rest. He made a day of it. It's in the very DNA of earth. God declared there would be a break from work. The daily focus would change. Every day being exactly the same would not exist. There would be a day of rest Refreshment, thankfulness, reflection, joy. The Jews were actually commanded with the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy because God created in six days and on the seventh day, of course, he rested. You ever think about this? A day? 24 hours? He could have given the standard 30-minute lunch break. He could say, hey, one, in one, one day out of seven, you're going to sleep until nine. A whole day, a whole 24 hours God was so merciful to do that. So not only did, he, did rest come into being, the Jews were commanded to rest just as their creator did on the seventh day. And so we ask ourselves, why? Why, why did God 
create rest? Or why did God rest? He did work for six days, so did he need rest? Well, no, the Bible tells us he didn't need rest. Psalm 124 verse 1 says, the one that keeps us does not slumber. God does not need of rest. He doesn't need that nap. The simple answer might be this, and we could really go deep, but the simple answer is really this. And consistent with all the other days of creation, rest is good, right? Rest is good. It's good to stop, isn't it? It's good to stop. So much happens when we just stop and look up. Actually, we get ourselves in trouble if we don't stop and look up, right? Think about those bushes in the backyard you hedged, right? You get going on those things, and all you can see is, I just want to get this done and over with, right? It's getting hot out here. Then you're hacking away at those bushes, and, and stuff is flying. Everything's going everywhere, right? If you don't stop and look up, what's going to happen? Those things look like a mess, right? you got to stop and take a look and go, no, I'm doing a little much here, too much there. i got to fix that. i got to round that there, right? Same with haircuts. If we don't stop and look up, we're going to miss out on some things. And to be clear, let's be very clear up front. Our rest is ultimately not found in a day. It's found in Jesus Christ. Are we bound to the Sabbath rules of the Old Testament as the Jews were? No, we're not. We're bound by the commandment in Hebrews 10.25 to stir each other up to good works, not neglecting to meet together as God's people. Historically, the people of God have met on the Lord's day, and that falls at the beginning of the week. So we assemble together, resting in the Lord as we worship. So what good does happen when we stop in worship on Sunday. When we stop and look up to the Lord, what happens? Well, several things happen. How about this? We remember that toil is temporary. Right? Toil is temporary. There's a timer on toil. Is there an amen for that? All right, there we go. We with creation are waiting for the adoption. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 23, right? We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our body. There's a new body coming. This isn't forever. We know that the curse was crushed at Calvary, and we know that toil is limping out its final days. When we rest, we remember that our bodies will be redeemed and replaced with incorruptibility. So we stop and remember toil is temporary. How about this? We remember that work is not my life, right? Work is not my life. Accomplishments Paychecks, trophies, that's not my life. A professor I had uh, named Dr. Shoemaker used to say this, life is not about accomplishments. Life is about relationships. That's well, that's well stated. Where could, he, where could he glean such wisdom? Well, it'd be from when Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest thing you could do. Not get a pay raise. Not get that promotion. right? Not hit that home run. The greatest thing we can do is what? It's found relationally, loving God and then loving others. So our life is not about work, accomplishments. It's about relationships. What else do we remember? We remember that work is not my supplier. God is. When we stop and look up, we remember that, hey, God is supplying all my needs according to his riches and glory. Not me, not myself. We remember that God is working. Didn't Jesus say, my father is working until now and I am working? That's John chapter 5, verse 17. And when we stop, we realize, oh, yeah, look at all that God is doing. Yeah, he is in control. He is sovereign. And my worry and my anxiety looks really out of place. Um, you've been to the amusement park, I'm sure, and you've seen that. We used to call it the, the old-fashioned cars. You, you know that ride where there's a, 
there's a concrete path and there's a metal uh, beam that sits in the middle of it. And it's usually, I think, antique cars that kind of ride along it, very slow. It's a relaxing ride. Have you seen that six-year-old? You know what I'm talking about? The six-year-old, he's excited. Last year, he wasn't big enough to reach the pedal, but this year, he's big enough to reach the pedal. He sits in that front seat. And he's going to drive that thing, man. He's driving. He's got mom in the back seat with baby sister. Last thing dad said was, hey, hey, take care of mom now. Take care of mom. And he pushes that pedal down, and he is all jacked up, man. He's got his hands on that, on that, uh, on that steering wheel, and he's got to keep that car on the path. Dodge the plastic cow. Dodge the brook with the plastic fish. And when he does it, he's on cloud nine. Isn't he? Dad, I drove the car. Somebody much older who kind of knows the ropes just sits in the car and relaxes, doesn't he? Yeah, he's got to push the pedal. He's got to steer the wheel. But he knows that metal beam underneath is what? It's going to keep him on the path. I don't oversimplify, but listen, when it comes to following the Lord, we can rest. That metal uh, rod there is the promises of God. He's not leaving us. He's not forsaking us. He's supplying for us. He's taking care of our needs. And when we stop and look up, we remember, oh yeah, my life's not governed by work. It's not governed by my choices. My life is governed by the sovereign, loving hand of God. And his promises have never failed, nor will they. He is our ever-present help in time of needs. When we stop and look up, what else happens? What else? We remember that the best of life is not what I gained through work, but what was given to me through grace. Think about that. What's the, great, what's the best things in life? What are the greatest things in life? The greatest things in life are, are what? It's the people next to you. It's the, it's the next breath you get to breathe, right? It's the salvation we have through Jesus Christ and him alone. And which of those things did we work for? None of it. And we remember, oh yeah, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The best things of life have nothing to do with my work. So toil is temporary. Work is not my life. We remember the best things are gained through grace and not work. How about this? When we rest, we realize all we put our hands to do cannot save us or sanctify us. It's kind of a summarizing thought. Remember the pride of Nebuchadnezzar? What did he say? Really, really cringe-worthy moment. Is not this great Babylon, this is Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, is not this great Babylon which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And the Bible says that while the words were in his mouth, God began to humble him and drove him out into the wilderness where he spent seven years among the beast. And only after those seven years when he humbled himself, he came back in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 says, I bless the Most High and praise and honored him who lives forever. He realized what we need to realize. God is in control. And when we rest and look up, we humble ourselves before God and we remember, oh yeah, God in control. I can have rest. So rest is good. And all this came from God's merciful hand. This rest, this reflection, this refreshment, this reminding, this thankfulness, this joy from God's merciful hand and God's merciful heart. It all came from him. So what's going on in Mark chapter 2 and then Mark chapter 3? This God-given merciful rest is being distorted and is in need of restoration. Let's go ahead and read it again. Verse 23, one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, 
And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the disciples were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those that were with him? So the king has come to restore the rest. Notice what Jesus says. He confronts the question of the Pharisees. Why are you letting him do this? That's not lawful. They're, they're plucking grain with their, with their, their hands and they're, they're eating it. They're harvesting. That, that can't be. So Jesus answers their question with a question of his own. He does this oftentimes in Scripture. We see that. And he begins the question with, have you never read? Oh, this would have been scathing to the Pharisees. Had they read? Perhaps they memorized. They would have known this story inside and out, or so they thought they did. But they're going to mischaracterize the story of David as they mischaracterize the fourth commandment. What about that fourth commandment? Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. I think it's on the screen. I'll read it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Did you ever notice that the fourth commandment of 10 is the longest? I can't help but wonder, did Jesus, did God know that there would come a day where his son would have to combat those that wanted to add to his laws? But it's clear. God says no labor. And no sneaking around the commandment by delegating your work to others. Everything shuts down, even the animals. Rest. Stop you working. Because you're working, you're stopping to work on the outside reveals a trust on the inside. Because ultimately, that, that's, that's what it was, wasn't it? It was a test to see would they trust. Would they trust the Lord to provide for them when they wouldn't provide for themselves on the seventh day? God had to say to them, trust me. Enjoy this rest. Trust me. Don't go saving that manna for tomorrow. Remember when they did that? Don't gather on the, uh, don't save your manna for tomorrow. What happened? It turned gross. It turned to worms. It got stinky. God was telling him early, trust me. I'll take care of it. Trust me. I will provide. Trust me and rest. This is my merciful and outstretched hand to you. But it's so interesting. Does Jesus go to the fourth commandment when he answers the Pharisees? No, he doesn't. Jesus could have said, no. Pharisees, you got it all wrong. They're not laboring. They're not harvesting. I've checked their hearts. Their hearts are trusting. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Done. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he goes to 1 Samuel chapter 21 of all places and tells a story. Let me go ahead and read it. Uh, Jesus' account, verse 25. And he said to them, have you not read what Jesus did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those that were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the Pharisees, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Why don't we take a second and just go back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. It's only six verses. I think it's going to be up there on the screen. I'll go ahead and read the story 
from 1 Samuel when David visits Ahimelech. When I say Ahimelech, you might be saying, well, Jesus said Abiathar, what's going on there? It's important to understand this. When Jesus spoke and referenced parts of the Old Testament, he would have been referencing a part of the scroll. There weren't chapter and verses. So it was common to say, go to the place of Abiathar. Well, why was Abiathar mentioned and not Ahimelech? Well, Abiathar was more prominent of priests. After the story of Ahimelech, unfortunately, Ahimelech will lose his life. Abiathar becomes a prominent priest all through the glorious reign of David. So it was very, um, uh, very appropriate for Jesus to say, go to the place of Abiathar. So let me go ahead and read. And David came to Nob, to Ahimelech. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread and whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today when their vessels be holy? So the priest, verse 6, so the priest gave him the holy bread, and there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that is taken away. So this bread was the bread of the presence. If you go to Leviticus chapter 24, you can read about the bread of the presence. Every Sabbath day, the priest brought in 12 loaves of hot bread and put it on the golden table before the Lord. What a beautiful picture was displayed there that there would be fellowship between the 12 tribes of Israel, the children of Israel, and with God Almighty. That's what that would have represented. At the end of the week, that bread became food for the priests as it was replaced with a new round of hot bread. As Jesus said, David and his men ate consecrated bread, which was not lawful. But notice, David's need received mercy from the priest. It was not a matter of carnality but rather that of supplying for human need. John MacArthur puts it this way, the priest was very, very wise. He understood that no ceremony should survive while some person dies. If people die, there's no ceremony, right? Ceremony is ceremony. Ritual is symbolic. You don't save a ceremony and lose a person. It has its place, but mercy triumphs over ritual and ceremony. The priest understood that anybody would understand. What anybody would understand is common sense. Nothing's more valuable than life. So the question has been asked, was, was Jesus playing loose with Scripture in attempts to defend himself? No, not at all. Actually, the authority of his interpretation of Scripture is amazing. What Jesus does here is he pinpoints the Scripture that the Pharisees needed to see. The Pharisees, oh, they saw value in life. They saw value in the life's lives they wanted to see value in. And Jesus here is pressing in on their merciless heart. Let me further explain. Notice Jesus doesn't highlight the fact that, oh, David here is special. Maybe David should get some special treatment. Was David God's anointed at that time? Yes. David was God's anointed king. He's chosen royalty. Was that reason? Nope. 
Jesus, by the same token, doesn't say, hey, my disciples and I get a pass because, well, I am from the eternal, I am the eternal king of David's line. Nope, he doesn't go there. Both these were unfair. Jesus instead is revealing the categories of the Pharisees' merciless and stubborn and callous hearts. Basically, they had mercy for David, but for no one else. If the Pharisees were going to berate Jesus and his disciples, they should also too berate David. But the Pharisees loved David. David represents Israel at their greatest moments. Did you notice in the Bible, all the kings after David are compared back to David? David took out Goliath, and then after that, every single battle that the Bible records, he wins. He's the undefeated king of the Old Testament, and the Pharisees love him. And to the Pharisees, he's worthy of a pass. For this breach of ceremony, for their love for David, they're willing to extend mercy. But to the tax collector, no way. To the sinners at the beginning of Mark chapter 2, uh-uh. And certainly not to Jesus and his disciples. And certainly no mercy for a man with a withered hand that we'll meet in chapter 3. So we've got to stop right here and ask ourselves, do we love people? It sounds so simple. It sounds so Sunday school-ish. Let's stop and examine our hearts. Do we love people? The Pharisees had the scriptures. They knew them inside and out. Yet somehow in all that, they had no love for people. By contrast, look at Jesus. If you had a pulse, no, I take that back. Lazarus didn't have a pulse. But Jesus still loved him, right? There was nobody not worthy of Jesus' time and touch. He saw people separate from their sin. We have the tendency to say things like, oh, well, he wouldn't be in that situation if he didn't make that decision back when he was 17. Oh, that wouldn't have happened. He wouldn't have drowned in the Rio Grande if he just went through customs. And what's revealed there? Oh, God, go in there and take that away. God, help us to grieve with people and love people. Take this ugliness away. Last week, Pastor Chris talked about our place at the table. No, we certainly want to align ourselves with the Pharisees. We'll never be Jesus. Where are we in that picture? We're right there with the sinners at the table. And my place at that table absolutely reveals what? That all people are redeemable. Isn't that awesome? All people are redeemable. All people are, are subject, can be subject to the mercy and the grace of God. And my place at the table demands that I desire that other sinners join and take part in that reunion with their maker. So the question hangs in the air. Do you and I have mercy? Do we care? The Pharisees on God's day of mercy, ironically, on God's day of mercy, the Pharisees had none. So the proclamation of the Lord, let's keep reading. Verse 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. There's been four questions so far in Mark chapter 2 in which the king makes proclamation. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the Son of Man, the king with the authority says this, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The king makes his proclamation. How about this? Why do you, why do you, why do you eat and drink with sinners? And the king proclaims as a physician is for the sick 
So I came to call sinners to repentance. Hey, why do your disciples not fast? The king proclaims, I am the bridegroom. They will fast when I'm not here. And now, hey, what's with the plucking of the grain on the Sabbath? You are not obeying the Sabbath. And the king proclaims, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the harvest. Look at that phrase, Son of Man, Lord of the harvest. Obviously, Son of Man, as Pastor Chris has mentioned, is a reference to his messianic title prophesied in the book of Daniel. And you might be saying, wait a minute. According to Genesis and Exodus, the Sabbath day already has a Lord. Exactly. Exactly. Jesus, again, is standing in the place of Jehovah. In Mark chapter 2, like Chris mentioned, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is forgiven sin. He has no place in stepping in to forgive the sins that were transgressed against God unless he's God. He's declared himself to be the bridegroom, and now, in like manner, he's now Lord of the Sabbath. For Jesus to restore the Sabbath to his original intent, Jesus must be the original ordainer. He must be God. The creator and ordainer and blesser of the Sabbath, well, that's the Lord, and he is the Lord. Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And as the angel says, his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And because he's Lord of the Sabbath, his declaration is final. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Doesn't that statement just shout mercy? Doesn't that just say, reprieve? And that's the way it was always, was always supposed to be. If you study Isaiah chapter 50, 58, the mercy of the Sabbath was always to be a delight to the Israelites. The Sabbath was made for man. Just a couple of illustrations can you imagine, for you golfers out there, I know there's a few. Can you imagine going to a beautiful, pristine golf course? I mean, gorgeous, perfect day. You're going to enjoy a round or two of golf with your friends. But every 20 feet, there's signs that say, stay off the grass. Can you even do that? Can you even play golf without getting on the grass? I mean, maybe you try, maybe you try to stay on the, the tree line or whatever. And, and Come on, that's crazy. The golf course was made for who? The golfers. Maybe the illustration doesn't work. <laughs> How about this? My great aunt, I love her. But she, she used to put plastic over her furniture. <laughs> and if you put plastic over your furniture, I, I, mean, I mean no disrespect. <laughs> and, and maybe because her great-great-nephew or whatever wasn't good at keeping things in his mouth, maybe that's why she had the plastic on the furniture. But when I got older, I noticed even when I knew how to keep things in my mouth, the plastic was still there. You know how uninviting a chair is with plastic on it? <laughs> or does anybody ever cuddle up with a plastic blanket? Oh, I make fun of that, but I think of myself, when I was a freshman in high school, I got a new scientific calculator. It was beautiful, it was nice. And I remember being algebra class and I didn't want to take off the protective plastic that went over the screen, so I didn't. First semester, second semester. By the third semester, I had people looking at me really odd as I'd punch in little buttons and then have to squint my eyes as close as I could so my eyes could go through the plastics to see the number. Finally, the guy next to me said, I can't stand anymore, and he ripped the plastic off. <laughs> 
the calculator was, was not made for the plastic. I don't know if any of these illustrations work, but listen, the Sabbath was made for man. It was all part of God's wonderful mercy to us to rest, and of course, to rest in him. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, a verse we know well, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. That labor, that burden they carried was very much the laws placed on the Israelites because of their man-made laws. Speaking of such, let's go to number four. What did the Pharisees create? As we move into Mark chapter three, what did the Pharisees create? We see what God created, but what did the Pharisees create? The religious leaders over the centuries had supposedly clarified God's intention of the Sabbath. They would have done better to let the word of God speak than to try to clarify the words of God or presuppose the intention of God. They had 39 sections of prohibitions that further categorized the Sabbath day, creating a labyrinth of rules that were nearly impossible to memorize, never mind keep. There was scrutiny to the number of steps a person could take, and there's scrutiny for the number of letters somebody could actually write. Mark Moore in Jewish culture writes this, there were five types of interdictions laid down by the Jews. One, those specifically forbidden in the scriptures. They probably should have stopped there. Number two, those supposedly forbidden in the scriptures. Number three, things forbidden because they might lead to transgression of the biblical command. Number four, actions that are similar to the kinds of laborers supposed to be forbidden in the Bible. And number five, actions that are regarded as incompatible with the honor due to the Sabbath. Can you just feel the weight coming down on those Israelites? And it led to foolishness. You've heard of some of these things. Uh, I, I, studying this week, I learned that, hey, yes, you could have cotton in your ear. Maybe your ear is oozing or, or something. You, you need cotton in your ear. Make sure you put it in before the Sabbath because it's not allowed. you're not allowed to put cotton in your ear on the Sabbath day. If you're wise and put it in the day before, that's good, but if it falls out on the Sabbath, forget it. You can't pick it up and put it back in. It's okay to toss something and catch it with the other hand. Tossing and catching with the same hand, too much labor. Nope. You could wear a garment that was intended to face forward, and you could slide it to the back. Think like an apron, maybe. But taking it from the back to the front, nope. Couldn't do that. Exactly why, I'm not sure. You couldn't eat an egg that was laid by a chicken on the Sabbath day, unless... The chicken was preordained as a Sabbath chicken. In that case, and I'm, I'm reading this from, from uh, Mark Moore, if it laid an egg, you could then eat the egg because it was simply part of the chicken that had fallen off. No wonder Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. They piled weight after weight after weight on their fellow Israelite, and they had, again, no mercy of heart. No, they didn't care about the grunting, the pain. They didn't care about the anguish they caused. No mercy. And again, on a day that God designed to be merciful, they had no mercy and they had no love for people. Let's keep reading in Matthew chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Let's go to the synagogue. And he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus 
to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, that they may accuse him. And he said to the man of the withered hand, he said to the man of the withered hand, come here. What I find really interesting is that the man did not go to Jesus. And I think this is the first time we see this in Mark, and it's pretty consistent all through Mark that people are coming to Jesus in droves, right? In, in, uh, in, in, uh, in Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1 ends, it's evening time, and they're still bringing people to the door in which Jesus is staying, right? Mark chapter 2, they, they, they rip the, the, the roof away to bring down the paralyzed man because he can't get through the crowd. Uh, read into chapter 3 a little bit, and you'll see that Jesus says, hey, uh, they're, they're, they're crushing on me. I need to get in a boat. And what are they doing? They're trying to get close to Jesus. They reach out and touch his hem. You see that in chapter 6 as well. They, they're, they're laying out the sick in the street so the street can reach out and touch Jesus and be healed. This is awesome. But what's going on this day on the, on the Sabbath in the synagogue? The man with the withered hand doesn't feel like he can go to Jesus. Why? There's a wall there. A wall. The Sabbath rules have built a wall for this man. And he's not going to Jesus. I can't help but think about the time where the children wanted to come to Jesus and the disciples stood in the way. Was Jesus very happy with that? No. He was angry with the deepest form of anger. No, you do not prevent them to come from coming to me. Did Jesus say? He looked over Israel and said, I just want to gather you to me like a, like a, like a hen, her chicks. Shows the compassionate heart of God. No, come to me, come, come. And these Sabbath rules have now what? Built up a wall. This man feels the eyes of the Pharisees on him. No, you just sit there in your misery. This is a Sabbath day, honor God. And look what the Pharisees have created. Resting on the Sabbath was an outward show, was to be an outward show of an inward trust. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus rips the Pharisees apart verbally for their constant disregard for the issues of the heart. Justice and mercy, they want none of that. And again, God is calling us to examine our hearts. Do we love mercy? Do we love justice? Are we loving people without category? By the way, that is our divining mark as followers of Christ, is it not? John 13, 35. By this, all people know you are my disciple, disciples if you have love for one another. Chapter five, oh, excuse me, point number five. And let's go back to verse four. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So Jesus asked a question, and the Pharisees have no answer but silence. What, what is lawful on the Sabbath? What did the lawgiver really desire to be done on the Sabbath? He told us in Matthew, the same story, the same account, Matthew's account, chapter 12 of Matthew, he desires, God does, God desires mercy and not sacrifice. God wants all of us, inside and out, he wants our hearts, and he wants our hearts broken before him, full of mercy, full of love. Kids growing up in a Christian home, don't think it's the outward. The outward good deeds without an inward heart of love and submission and humility is just going the way of the Pharisees. God wants our hearts. What is going on in these hearts of ours? God did not create us to be wind-up toys, little, little robots, regurgitating empty words and empty songs. Nope. 
programmed to do action without feeling, without compassion. No, that was never what God intended for us to be. And if you remember in verse five, it grieved him when he sat there. They sat there, the Pharisees did, with no remorse. It would have been highly appropriate for them to bow their heads in shame, for their eyes to tear up with disgust for themselves, to whisper a prayer of repentance. Instead, they sit there with their stubborn necks and their callous hearts and a sneer on their face, feeling nothing as this poor man gets a major part of his life back. And this is what we look like when we climb on the throne of our own lives. Right? Isn't it simple geometry? If we're in the middle of the circle, everything's around us. Who needs compassion on others when everything in my circle exists for my pleasure and comfort? This grieved the Lord. But it's important to note, too, that even in his anger, Jesus does not bruise the reed or snuff out the smoldering wick. Pastor Chris mentioned this a few weeks ago. That's, that's Matthew chapter 12, verse 20. Jesus is very different. His call for, in his call for mercy, he actually shows mercy. He could have wiped them out, could he not? He could have given them all withered hands, but he doesn't. And notice Jesus asks, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? And then he says this, to save life or to kill? If you're on the outside listening to this, what, what? save life and, and kill? Is, 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 somebody gonna, is somebody gonna die? You might have thought that's, that's really out of place. Well, until you read verse six. Chapter three, verse six. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So Jesus actually foretells their very next move. They're gonna seek to kill. And Jesus asked him, is that lawful on the Sabbath? To kill? The series is called The King and Cross. The King has restored the rest, all while taking steps towards Calvary's cross. I just find this cap captivating. Jesus, in perfect concert, is restoring order but unraveling man's ways with never seen before wisdom while taking the necessary steps towards a hideous death that will pay the penalty for man's grotesque sin. It's amazing when you think of all that is going on. No wonder Chris would say, hey, I've been studying chapter three and it's just amazing me. Finally, let's finish up with this thought. The problem with two lords. The Pharisees have gotten something right. The Pharisees have made themselves in their 39 rules Lord of the Sabbath. So if this guy coming on the scene is Lord of the Sabbath and when we're Lord and dictators of the Sabbath, we can't have that. Their lordship's being challenged. They don't want any of that. And it's true, you can't have two lords. One has got to go. One has got to die. If two are there, there's fighting for true lordship. We began the message talking about rest a little bit. Can you say, Christian, that you are experiencing rest and you're experiencing peace in your life? Or would you say, hey, I, I know what it's like, maybe even now, to feel like there's a fight within my spirit. Chris Elliott mentioned a few weeks ago that when we become lords of our lives, we lose our submissive posture towards God's spirit and rest in peace is replaced with a tense standoff. You've been there, I've been there, right? God's spirit says forgive. 
We don't want to. Is there peace? Nope. God tells us to give, but God, that's my money I'm going to use this weekend. Is there peace? Nope. God tells us to befriend ourselves and let our hair down and, and put ourselves out there a little bit and, and, and you know, air out our dirty laundry or whatever for the sake of meeting people and showing we're real and just kind of, you know, for the sake of the cross, for the sake of sharing the gospel. Lord, I don't, I don't, I don't do that. I just want to stay in the comforts of, that, of that, that home Josh was praying about just a little while ago. Is there peace? No. When we decide to lose our submissiveness and our humility before God, when we lose that spirit of, Lord, yes, have your way, expect a standoff. Expect tenseness. But when we forgive and when we give, when we host others, we stop the fighting and stop the resisting and the king restores the rest. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you because he trusts in you. We do well to stop resisting God and instead trust God. Christian, are you at peace today? This peace is not found in a good book or a nap. What do you mean? I like a good book and a nap. Sure, I do too. And it's restful. I agree. But when the book is done and the nap is over, if you're against the Lord and fighting the Lord, do you still have that peace? No. The tension returns. I like what Pastor Chris talks about, and I put it up here. This is not a quote. This is kind of a, uh, a paraphrase. I don't exactly know the rules of, of, of quoting. But Pastor Chris said this. Remember Jonah and Jesus. They were both asleep in the boat. One slept restlessly and the other slept restfully. One was in the will of God, and the other was not. Real peace that I'm talking about, a peace not tossed around by circumstances, is found in submission to the Father. Is it not? And maybe you're here today, and the last thing you could ever imagine is rest. You have none. Nor have you really experienced rest that hasn't been based on circumstances. Religiously, you've worked, and you've worked, and you've worked, and you've worked, and you always seem to come up short. Well, that's by design. We know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were, it was never designed that we would work our way to God in the first place. His holiness is a mountain that you and I can't even get close to, never mind climb over. His holiness is way beyond anything we could tackle. But is there a way? Yes. Jesus is the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and had your sins forgiven, today can be that day, and you can know peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know more about salvation, I'd be glad to talk to you right after the message. I'd enjoy telling you, from God's word, how a person can be saved from their sins and have that restoration of peace with the creator. The restorer of the rest is Jesus Christ. He's King Jesus. And Christian, the world needs to see our rest. The world needs to see our peace. You look out the window and you see a world and a people full of anxiety with questions, with a deep desire for peace. Our resting in Christ becomes that testimony to the world. I, I, I want to win the world for Christ. I want the, I want the world to see Jesus in me. Let them see your rest. Let them see your peace that comes only through Jesus Christ.
Let's bow our heads together. Let's pray. Gracious Father, restorer of rest, Father, thank you for your great mercy that you give us rest. Our lives with the toil and the stress that comes and goes and, and is always around the corner, it seems. Well, that's, that's not our lives. And, and we know that worrying and, and being upset and, and, and Lord, we know, as, as Jesus said, we can't add one hour to our life doing that. Lord, we do so much better to trust you. Lord, I pray you'd help our mind to be stayed on you as we trust you. And then, Lord, for, furthermore, our prayers are our neighbors, our family, those that we rub circles with at work, Lord, that they, they'd notice this peace. They'd notice this rest. And they'd be drawn to that. And they'd be drawn to our life and our testimony to you. Father, thank you for this day. Be with us now as we prepare our hearts for your supper. And Lord, may we have a, a good time of um, examining our lives. And we pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.